To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pharisees. We're always going after the Pharisees, aren't we? This, uh, this just seems to be a universal truth in churches, is that uh, tax collectors turn out to be good guys and Pharisees are always bad guys. In fact, if you were at children's church right now and somebody did something bad in a lesson, you know, like, and the teacher said, well, who said that bad thing? All the kids in the class would go, the Pharisees, because even the kids know the Pharisees do bad stuff. So we are trained to think in negative terms about Pharisees as villains. This was not the case, however, in Jesus' day. Pharisees were not villains. Pharisees were pretty good guys. Pharisees were the guys every guy wanted to be like. Every mom wanted a son like a Pharisee. Every woman wanted a husband like a Pharisee. Every dad wanted his daughter to bring home a Pharisee. You see what I'm saying? Like Pharisees were not bad guys. Pharisees were Eagle Scouts. Pharisees were, were they were overachievers, the cream of the crop. They weren't overly, you know, religious, just spoiled, rotten, like trust fund kinds of kids. Like they were, they were like blue collar family kids and they worked hard to get to where they were. Like they weren't born into Phariseeism. They had to earn it to be even considered as part of the Pharisaic fraternity. They had to memorize all the Psalms. By memory, I had trouble memorizing one verse of one psalm. They memorized 150 psalms. It's the biggest book in the Bible. On top of that, they memorized all 613 Old Testament laws. They knew them all by memory, and they were tested before they could be even considered for approval. So these guys, this was Tim Tebow stuff, you know what I'm talking about. Like these were, these were the guys, these were the good guys. So if... If you were a, a casual observer of a Pharisee standing in a temple praying the prayer like the one this Pharisee prayed, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other people. Thank you that I'm not like these, this depraved generation of sinners. Thank you that I'm different. If you heard that Pharisee saying that prayer, you'd go, yep, yeah, he's, he's a great man of God. That's why it was so shocking for Jesus to go at the Pharisees because Jesus did not see it that way. So what is the difference between the way Jesus sees people and the way we do? What's the difference between the way we measure goodness and the way Jesus does? I think the difference is that we judge goodness by comparison. So we determine how good a person, a person is or how good a person we are based on how we compare to those around us. So am I a better person than most of the people that I'm around most of the time? Yeah, probably, and so I'm a good person. You know, that's kind of how we do it. We judge it by generation, right? 
on the Maybe God podcast this week, shameless plug, Maybe God podcast, we had a conversation with this, with this pastor named Deb Hirsch. And this pastor, she's an evangelical pastor through and through. She believes the Bible would be the inspired word of God. And we talked about sex and sexuality and LGBT issues. And she believes that what the Bible says about these issues is the way is God's ideal. And she believes in a traditional orthodox kind of way that this is the word of God. And, and this is uh, how Christians should approach this issue. But she calls Christians to the mat first. Before calling people who live different lifestyles to the mat of judgment, she judges Christians first. She says Christians have missed the mark entirely when we ostracize, alienate, condemn people who live ways different from us. Because, she says, we treat some orientations as though they are the only ones who are disoriented. We treat ourselves as though we are not. And so we are whole, and they are broken. We are oriented. They are disoriented. But she says we're all broken. And that should be the starting line of any conversation we have with any person or group of people. The fact that we are all deeply broken. Even an example, I mean, a personal example is that I've, I've been superficially faithful to my wife. Some of you are like, superficially, what does that mean? And I'm just telling you, in a moment of honesty, I've been superficially faithful to her in the sense that I've only physically, bodily been with one woman in my life. But I'm more than just a body. I'm a mind. I'm a soul. I'm a heart. And in those other ways, I've had a notion from time to time. I've been tempted. I've had a thought, a fantasy. I've had pornography. I've had other ways of being unfaithful that no one ever goes, you're a cheater, you're an adulterer, you know. But have I been true? Am I broken? Am I disoriented? Obviously. There's no question. And so any conversation we have should start from there. The, the question that usually comes after that point that I just made from when I talk to Christians especially is, yeah, but look, look, not all sins are the same. You know what I mean? Like some sins are worse than others. So I'm not like them. We want to hold on to that Pharisee's point of view, right? And is it true that some sins are worse than others? Some sinners are worse than others? Sure. I mean, I can't deny that point. Like if you go home and discover that your neighbor has been killing his dates for a decade and he has a basement full of bodies and you haven't killed someone in a long time, then sure, like that, congratulations, you're a better person than him. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's some stuff that's worse than other stuff. There's some people that are better off than other people. Just like the Pharisee was, was at least fundamentally in some ways better than the tax collector was. But Jesus is saying the Pharisee would be better off in the eyes of God if he prayed like a tax collector prays. The Pharisee would be better off if he were praying the prayer of the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner, if he couldn't even bring himself to look up to heaven. Why is it that Jesus looks at this differently? It's because we're measuring goodness with the wrong ruler. We're measuring with the wrong metric. Instead of comparing ourselves to our peers, instead of comparing yourself to your generation, we should be comparing ourselves to God, to the holiness and goodness and perfection of God. This is Jesus' point, and it's a good point, because being the least sinful guy in your messed up office, being the most virtuous girl in your class, it's all well and good, but it's a little bit like being a valedictorian in Arkansas. Like it feels like an honor. 
but is it really? You know what I mean? <laughs> so another way, of, another way of looking at this is when you look up in the sky. Y'all get over it. Come on. You look up in the sky <laughs> and you see the moon and the sun in the same sky and they look the same size to you. From your perspective, they are the same size. You know, for generations, for most of our time on earth, people looked up and thought the moon and the sun were equal. Because from our perspective, they appear to be equal in the sky. They appear to be the same size. But the moon is just 237,000 miles away. The, the sun is 93 million miles away. That's a big difference. So wrap your head around that difference. I did some math this week. And to bring that into scale, if you can assume to me, with me that the Kirby Ice House is the sun... And I am the earth. Anita, raise your hand. Anita's the moon. That's the difference. Y'all see that? Anita's sitting right here. Raise your hand again. Anita's about 10 feet from me. And Kirby Ice House is the sun. And I am the earth. Anita is the moon. So, from our perspective, the moon may seem far away from us. But from the perspective of the sun, it's really not that different. It's really not that far apart. Jesus' point in the story is that we're comparing ourselves to the moon when we should be comparing ourselves to the sun. We're comparing ourselves to each other, to those closest to us, instead of God. If the Pharisee compared himself to God's holiness and perfection instead of the people around him in the temple that day, he would have prayed more like the tax collector, on his knees, begging, groveling, have mercy on me, a sinner. He would have been ashamed. And that, Jesus says, would have been a good thing. For him to feel the weight of shame. And that, my friends, got me thinking long and hard this week about shame. Because everywhere I look in my culture right now, it feels like shame is never a virtue. It feels like shame is always a bad thing. If you feel it, you got to get rid of it. If others make you feel ashamed, you ought to drop them from your life. If you make others feel ashamed, you're a bigot. You're judgmental. Doesn't really matter what you're calling them out for. And really, any kind of shame now is considered toxic shame. And they've got all kinds of, of labels for what you do to people whenever you call certain things out. You know, the, the most common one is if you call out promiscuity, they, call you, they say you're slut-shaming. And I understand why it's considered to be a bad thing because it's not always helpful at all. It can be very toxic. We call it slut-shaming. When you, when you call someone out, you know, if they're a glutton or if they've got a problem with food and call it out, you're, you're body shaming or you're, you can be fat shaming, I, I guess. And, and I understand that one too. It's a little weird beyond that, though, because our culture is kind of, kind of taking this ball and run with it a little bit. Because I came across some articles this week where women who were passionate about breastfeeding were accused by other women of formula shaming. Formula shaming is a thing now in our culture. It sounds very weird to me. I don't know how that happened. There was one man uh, who got sick of the girls in his life calling him creepy. And so he wrote an article accusing women of creep shaming. We shouldn't be, it's a true, true story. You can Google creep shaming. It became a whole thing a couple years ago. Creep shaming. Don't call the creepy guys who linger a little too long creeps. It's not nice. You know what I mean? There's entire websites devoted to this sort of thing. The entire website is devoted to how people shame their cats, which I'm not entirely averse to. However, <laughs> there is a line. Cat shaming such as this, where they put captions 
in front of a picture of their cat as if the cat is saying it. Like I put a half-dead mouse in mom's mouth because she wouldn't wake up to look at it. (laughs) In this confession where I tore open the catnip and now I'm too stoned to move. (laughs) And this is my favorite one. She says, I ran away and partied all night. Now I'm pregnant. So some cat shaming and some slut shaming in the same one. So Jesus... Jesus talked a lot about shame, maybe more than you're comfortable with. It's the stuff that you skip over, maybe. I almost didn't preach the sermon I'm about to preach because uh, I was afraid to, because I thought it's unpleasant and y'all aren't going to come back. You're not going to like it or you're not going to have fun. That's why I put all those jokes in earlier. So, can't say you didn't laugh here today. It's all downhill from there, however. Because Jesus talked a lot about shame. I think we ought to pay attention. And instead of skipping this sermon and moving on to the Good Samaritan or something that we like better, Maybe we ought to pay attention to what he talks about when he tells stories like the one we heard in the video and another one in Luke chapter 7. It's in your study guide. It's uh, the whole story is there, but I'll kind of walk you through it. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus was a, a dinner guest at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And Jesus was a traveling preacher at this point, kind of building his base and going from town to town. And, and Simon, as a leader in the community, saw it as his civic duty to invite the traveling rabbi over for dinner, and he does. And uh, they're, they're having dinner and the way that you had dinner back then, uh, it's a little weird. You kind of have to visualize it. But they, they leaned or they, they laid on their left side and kind of leaned on their left elbow. The table was real low to the ground. They leaned on their left elbow and then they ate with their, with their right hand. Super uncomfortable. I don't know how they did it or why, but that's how you ate back then. So Jesus and Simon are just kind of chilling, reclining at the table with their feet behind them. As they're eating, this sinful woman, we're told, this sinful woman, it's pretty clear from context clues in the story that she is a local prostitute. She finds her way to the house, and she finds her way through the house and through the front door, and she, she breaks into the party and basically stands behind Jesus, standing over his feet where he is relaxing, and she is crying. Something has happened to her. My, my, I think the common conception is she heard him preaching earlier in town that day. She heard him preaching, something connected with her, clicked with her, something changed in her, and she heard a rumor that he was going to be at Simon's house that night, so she made her way to the house, still crying from whatever change had occurred in her life before. She's crying so heavily that the tears are falling from her face, landing on Jesus' feet. She feels guilty about getting the teacher's feet wet, and so she gets on her knees and she dries them. She doesn't have anything else to dry them with, so she dries them with her hair, which she should not have been showing in a room full of men that was against Old Testament law. She wasn't supposed to be showing her hair. My personal opinion is that several of the religious men in that room had already seen her hair at some point in the past, if you know what I'm saying. So she dries her hair, he dries his feet with her hair, and then she kisses his feet with her lips. And then she takes a jar full of perfume, expensive, exquisite perfume, a prized possession of a woman in her profession. She pours it out. Not just a little bit. She pours it out, all of it, because she's done. (laughs) You see that? She's done with that perfume. She's done with that profession. She's, She's new now. So she pours out the perfume, and the smell of the perfume just fills the house. Simon, the Pharisee, does not appreciate this interruption. This is a formal dinner party, and this is a very serious occasion. Uh, The lead Pharisee is grilling the traveling preacher. So this woman 
breaks in and, and, and Simon doesn't appreciate it. He recognizes that she is a local prostitute. He whispers to himself, if this teacher was legit from God, if he was legitimately a man of God, he would know what kind of woman this is. He would know where she's been. He would ask himself, where have those lips been before he lets her kiss his feet? Because now this supposed rabbi is not even allowed to go to the temple anymore. He's unclean. I'm not even sure I can be around him. There's all these questions in Simon's head based on his perception, his perspective. If he knew what kind of woman this was, he would never let her touch him this way. She broke like seven Old Testament laws in about three and a half seconds. Jesus should have chased her off. Jesus should have alienated and condemned her right away to preserve the holiness in that room that day. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus perceives Simon's thoughts. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. In Luke chapter 7, verse 38, I believe, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon says, what is it, teacher? And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, how did that prostitute know where to find your house it seems like she's been here before a few times like she came right in he didn't say that i'm just kidding he could have said it he could have he could have said it but he didn't i was thinking it as i read the passage he probably was too because she did find that house somehow and uh anyway this is what he said in luke chapter 7 verse 40 to 50 it says simon two people owed money to a certain money lender one owed him 500 denarii that's about two years wages another owed him 50 that's about two months wages Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As great as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's very important that you hear the story. You know what's happening in this story. You may have heard it a hundred times and not really gotten what's going on because in First thing that's happening, there's two, two important facets here. First thing is that Jesus is shaming Simon. Jesus makes no qualms about it. Like he goes straight at Simon's shame and he lays it bare. Before him and everybody in that room, all the people that Simon, you know, was respected by, he lays bare Simon's shame. This is how he does it. He points out all the biblical laws and rules that Simon has broken since Jesus walked into his house. Hospitality was everything in this culture. Hospitality was biblical. You were, as a man of God, required to be hospitable to a guest, especially a traveling rabbi. At least a little water for his feet so he could dust that, or wash that dust off of his feet between his toes. It was gross. It was grimy. Simon didn't give Jesus anything. At least some oil for his head as an anointing, as a sign of God's blessing. No, Simon didn't give him anything. Not even a kiss on the cheek when he came in. All of those things are prescribed in the Old Testament. Simon did none of those things. Jesus is making a point here. This woman is not the only sinner in the room. And he's calling Simon to the mat. The second thing, the second thing that Jesus does here 
is that he forgives this woman's sins. And we're used to Jesus forgiving sins. It's kind of what he does. But in those days, the only person, the only being who could ever forgive someone's sins was God. Not a rabbi, not a teacher, just God. And so for a man to say, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, was utter blasphemy. This is the kind of stuff that got Jesus landed on a cross. Blasphemy. It went against the word of God for a man to say, your sins are forgiven. So what's Jesus saying? I'm not just a man. He is revealing himself in this room full of religious dudes and this woman who's just repented. He is revealing himself as more than a man, as God in the flesh. And this matters because even though Simon felt like he was a pretty good man, especially in relation to her, God was in the room that night. And from God's perspective, he should have been on the floor with her, crying like a prostitute. Because from the perspective of heaven, he wasn't too far from where she was at. From the vantage point of heaven, there's not much distance between the holiest Pharisee and a prostitute from the street. So Jesus lays Simon's shame in front of him. Not to make him feel bad. Not to give him a demotion. Not to challenge or threaten him but just in the hopes that he'll see it, his own shame, that he'll see it so he can repent of it, and he'll repent of it so he can be free from it. That's the point of healthy shame, is that it leads to repentance and freedom. When I thought about this thing of of healthy shame versus toxic shame, I couldn't help but think about this conversation we're having in our culture right now in terms of this uh, Larry Nasser business with the U.S. gymnastics team and and all that stuff and the horrible stories we've been hearing, the shameful things this man did without ever being called out on it by people who should have been calling him out on it. You've heard by now he molested, assaulted uh, like over 150 girls, some as young as six years old. Girls who trusted him. Girls who were giving everything to this sport that they loved and their little bodies were so broken and hurting because they give everything to the sport that they loved, they needed a doctor to help them feel better, to help them function. And so they went and laid on his examination table and he took advantage. He violated his sacred trust again and again and again and again without ever feeling any remorse. And whenever somebody raised questions, whenever these little girls spoke up, he made them feel naive or guilty or uncommitted to the sport they say they love. And so they stayed quiet for a time, but not forever. As we saw this week, as his trial came to a close and he was sentenced up to 175 years in prison, these little girls have become capable and strong young women, and they spoke up for themselves to his face in the courtroom. Every testimony was shocking in its own way. I found one particularly striking, the story of Rachel Den Hollander stood out to me for many reasons. When you hear her voice in a minute, I want you to hear the voice of a little girl who trusted her doctor and who was violated in the most vile ways again and again. Listen to what she has to say to the man who perpetrated these acts against her. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, 
you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of unjust and just? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. Their straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation, and I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. And this is why I pity you. It took me a while to process what she's saying. Because she extends forgiveness in such a way that she hopes to see this man in heaven one day. You know, when she said the part about I hope you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. I was right there with her, man. I was like, I hope he does too. I want him to feel the soul-crushing weight of guilt. And I wish, in some ways, some part of me wishes she had put a period on the end of the sentence right there because that's all I want for him. But she didn't. She said, I hope you experience, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. She said, that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, that it extends grace and mercy where it should not be found. It's there for you, she said. But first, we have to walk through the door of our shame. There are times when guilt is a gift. 
And I know everybody gets on edge when a, a preacher like me or some religious guy holding the Bible stands up and says, repent and believe the gospel, repent, the end is near. And everybody rolls their eyes and everybody feels threatened and you're like, oh, that religious stuff, I'm so sick of it. Listen, this is not that. This is so much more than that. And if that is all that you feel when you hear the word repent, then you might be deeper in your sin and your secrets than you thought. You might be the one who especially should be called out because guilt is not a punishment. Guilt is a gift. Guilt is a pathway toward repentance and wholeness and the life for which you were created. There is such a thing as healthy shame and not just for guys like Larry Nassar. Remember, remember that from the sun's perspective, the earth and the moon are not far apart. Remember that when you hear stories like Larry Nassar's. I know some of us have been told our whole lives we should never be ashamed of our feelings and our thoughts and our actions and we should just be happy with who we are because God made us this way. That is a lie. Sin is not our true nature. We were created for more. And, and as long as we're locked in our shame, shamelessness, we're just, we're slaves to it. We're slaves without shame. Slaves to our secrets, slaves to our sins. Jesus lays our shame bare before us. Jesus on the cross, beaten and naked and humiliated, is our shame laid bare. Every time we see him, we should see our shame laid bare. But it's not just so we'll walk around like pathetic religious people beating ourselves up about it. No, it's means to an end. Our shame laid bare is means to a greater end. It's salvation, it's hope, it's freedom to be the people we're created to be. You see, the people then had this idea that the Pharisees who stand up tall and say the right things are the real men, and everyone else should be men like them. Jesus says, do you know what a real man is? A real man is someone who feels the weight of his sin and his shame so much sometimes that he just says, I'm sorry. A real man doesn't lead his family with an iron fist. A real man goes to his wife when he needs to and says, I'm sorry, or to his kids or to his friends. A real man says, I'm sorry every day because none of us are perfect. None of us have it figured out. But you don't have to. You just have to be honest and humble and surrender to God and his mercy not to the church, not to membership or religion. Surrender to the fact that you're not and haven't been the person you've projected yourself to be. And it's then, it may hurt for a minute, but it's then that the pain will turn into joy. The shame will turn into salvation. And you will see a glimpse, maybe for the first time, you'll see a glimpse of what God has in store for you. It's a man of God, a woman of God, a child of God. So at the risk of sounding like that preacher downtown on a milk crate with a megaphone and an aluminum foil hat, I offer you the opportunity this morning to repent, the gift, to feel the crushing weight of guilt for all the ways we've missed the mark for all the ways we've stood in self-righteous over those others and prayed that Pharisee's prayer. To sit and be thankful for his mercy and his grace 
that extends to places that it should not be found. It extends to you today and to me, as broken as we are. It is his gift for us. Let's pray together. God, we, many of us, have fooled ourselves and others. We've run a pretty good game, but it's an exhausting game and we're tired of running. We're tired of worrying about being exposed or being laid bare before others about who we really are when no one's watching. So we choose to be proactive about it this morning and just to sit with our shame for a minute, to be honest about the ways we've missed it and the confidence that you will meet us there, not to beat us up over it, but to welcome us home. I pray that someone this morning will be welcome home after years of wandering home with you, after years of hiding the truth, home with you. Break through, Lord. Thank you for laying our shame bare on the cross, and thank you for dealing with it so that we don't have to. In Jesus' name, amen.